Hello, I'm Jack Parker. You're listening to Window on the World, a brand new podcast asking big questions about things that aren't happening on your doorstep. This week, there's been the shocking beheading of a French middle school teacher and a Labour landslide in New Zealand. But in this first episode, we ask, is Donald Trump trying to lose the election? Before we start, just think about this for a second. Where were you when you found out Donald Trump had been elected President of the United States? I was out hosting election night coverage on my university radio station, and I remember quite early in the night saying, when all of the states were sort of showing leans towards Hillary Clinton, I remember saying, this isn't going to be a good night for the Republicans. Famous last words. But that doesn't feel like four years ago. It feels really hard to believe that Trump became president four years ago. It's almost as hard to believe that so much has happened in Donald Trump's four years in office. During his first term, his administration has managed to kill Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of the so-called Islamic State, and hold multiple rounds of peace talks with North Korea. But he's also led the United States through a pandemic that's killed well over 200,000 people, sparked an international crisis by assassinating a senior Iranian commander, and unilaterally pulled out of numerous international deals, including the Paris Climate Agreement. In America, when someone is running for re-election, presidential races are more like referendums. There are only two main parties, only two main candidates, so many Americans face a pretty binary choice. Now, it's up to America to decide whether they've had enough Trump and want to boot him out, or whether they like what they see and fancy four more years. Polling data suggests that four more years for Donald Trump are unlikely. Democratic challenger Joe Biden has been ahead of Trump by at least 5% nationally in most polls since April. Pundits have been saying for months that the race was inevitably going to tighten, but if anything, it's actually widened particularly after that first presidential debate that was roundly criticised for being unintelligible, full of interruptions and incredibly chaotic. Despite Trump tweeting that he'd clearly won that debate, the broad consensus was that Joe Biden had come out on top, but that he hadn't actually done too well himself. It wasn't necessarily a case of the knight in shining armour, but more, he was the least worst. 538 is a fantastic website analysing politics, among other things, and after that first debate, their data currently shows Joe Biden leading by 10% in the national average. That's as of the 21st of October. One poll on the 12th of October even had Biden ahead by 18 points. It turns out that that was very much an outlier, but it's still indicative of the general direction of the race. Even the Trafalgar Group, that's a pollster renowned for being among the most conservative-leaning, currently points to a Joe Biden victory. It's a very slim victory, but a win's a win. But it's important to bear in mind that these are national polls, and national polling data can be skewed by popular states. The real big juggernauts like California, New York and Illinois all have major US cities that historically are very Democrat. As Hillary Clinton knows full well, US presidential elections aren't decided by the national popular vote. Instead, they use the electoral college system, which means each state sends a number of electors to Congress in January to vote on behalf of the state. The magic electoral college number that a candidate needs is 270. 
Now this system means that you've got to consider each state as an independent race independently of the others. As a result, there are 10 swing states to watch. These are the states where this election will be decided. Those 10 states are Florida, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Ohio, Iowa, and Arizona. Together, those 10 states provide 151 electoral college votes, so they're a hugely significant set of states to try and win over. In 2016, Trump did just that. He won nine out of those 10 states. In fact, the only one of them he missed was Minnesota, and he only lost that to Hillary Clinton by a couple of percent. That said, some of his own victories were unbelievably close. Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania were each won by less than 1%. Across the three states, Trump won by just 70,000 votes. Considering 130 million were cast across the country, that's a ridiculously small margin. Those three states took Trump over the Magic 270 line, so many have said since that Trump effectively won the whole election by just 70,000 votes. This election cycle, though, Joe Biden has a solid lead in five of those states, and is leading by a couple of percent in North Carolina and Florida. Iowa looks set to remain Republican, but Ohio and Georgia are changing sides pretty much every day. Because Joe Biden has seemingly managed to flip so many of these states, it's now widely expected that he'll win the election. In fact, as long as he holds on to everything that Hillary Clinton won, he only needs to flip Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Flip those 70,000 votes, and he's there. He's in the White House. If the odds fall in Biden's favour, he could win this election in a landslide. But if the race does tighten in the next fortnight, then it could be a closer Biden win, or Trump could pull off another upset, as he did four years ago. Interestingly, though, both sides are trying to play down the polling data. Democrats are saying everyone should ignore them, because they want to try and avoid the complacency that they suggest led to Hillary Clinton's loss. But Republicans point to that 2016 upset, saying that by narrowly taking several key swing states, pollsters got it completely wrong. But you've arguably got to question that stance. In the 50 states, Trump is only polling ahead of his 2016 numbers in one of them, Utah. But four years ago, there was a third-party candidate in Utah who took a fifth of the vote. This time around, it's a straight-up two-horse race. Almost inevitably, therefore, Trump's percentage would then go up. Given that little nuance, you could say that across the board, the poll suggests that Donald Trump is in a worse position now than he was four years ago. Several pollsters claim they've made changes to the way they calculate their polls in order to make them more accurate. Well, we'll see how right they are about that on election night. With all of that in mind, if you choose to believe the polls, then it seems pretty clear that Donald Trump has an uphill battle to re-election. Some people may say that it's so uphill that there's no point in trying, but obviously that would be quite defeatist and would go against the nature of democracy. The word unprecedented has been used so many times recently that it's almost become a cliche. It's lost so much of its meaning, but it's still very much applicable to this election. After all, Donald Trump's has been an unprecedented presidency in many ways, so why would we expect his re-election bid to be any different? The reason why this election is unprecedented is because coronavirus has changed the game completely. 
concerns about the spread of the virus at polling stations has meant that mail-in ballot use has rocketed this year, so much so that they could play a critical role in how this election plays out. Let's discuss why. Admittedly, this is based on a lot of speculation. I'm not psychic, none of us are, so none of us can know exactly how this is going to happen at this point in time. How wild this speculation is, well, that's up to you to decide. I suppose this is a bit of a thought experiment, if you like. According to a Democracy Fund and UCLA Nationscape survey, around 40% of Americans are set to use mail-in ballots this year. That's around double the amount from four years ago. In fact, TargetSmart official data shows that at least 34 million voters have already cast their ballots as of the 21st of October. That's around a quarter of all ballots cast in 2016 already cast this time. Another survey by the Democracy Fund and UCLA Nationscape from the beginning of October asked Trump and Biden supporters whether they were going to vote by mail, in person on election day, or in person in the early voting window. They found that only 22% of Trump supporters would use mail-in ballots, and just over half would be voting in person on election day. We see almost the complete inverse among Biden voters. Just over half would vote by mail, while a quarter would vote in person on election day. Now, if those figures bear out, not only does that show that Democrats and Republicans have vastly different mentalities about the risks of catching coronavirus, but it also poses a huge issue about what happens when in this election. Since in-person ballots are counted first and more quickly, that means Donald Trump should take a big early lead in most states, especially the swing states. But as the results from the mail-in ballots trickle in, and as election day becomes election week, the tide may begin to turn as Joe Biden edges ahead. When all votes are counted, as they should in every election, of course, the current expectation is that Joe Biden will have won. Now what could happen then, and this really is just speculation, is a series of constitutional and legal mechanisms that take the election out of the electorate's hands. If Republicans can see that they were in the lead on election night based on mostly in-person ballots, then they might choose to file legal challenges to disregard tens of thousands of mail-in ballots. Democrats, you could assume in that circumstance, would then file countersuits. Amid all the confusion, state legislatures in those states may decide to choose the electors for the electoral college themselves, and that's something they can actually do. Bear in mind, though, that of the 10 swing states that I mentioned before, nine of them have Republican legislatures. The 10th, Minnesota, is split between the two parties. So if those nine Republican legislatures decide to side in favour of Trump, they presumably send Republican electors to the final electoral college vote in January. Democrats would then file more lawsuits to block this, or send their own electors in January. So then you'd have some disputed states with two different slates of electors, and that isn't possible, of course. Now, at that point in January, regardless of the outcome of this election, Republicans will still have a majority in the Senate. The Senate has the power to discard electoral votes of disputed states. If enough states' votes are invalidated, it's possible that neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump will have enough electors to pass that 270 barrier. This final step is set out in the Constitution, 
If neither candidate reaches 270, then it's up to the House of Representatives to vote for the president. Now, you would think that that's good news for Joe Biden, because the Democrats have a majority in the House of Representatives. But the Constitution states that in this event, each state gets one vote. That means California, with 40 million inhabitants, and Wyoming, a state of less than 600,000 people, get exactly the same say. If the current numbers hold, the number of Republican state delegations would be 26. The Democrats would have 23. Pennsylvania is evenly split, so it's unclear how they would land. What that means is Republicans would have a majority in this vote, and Trump would win it. Now, I'll reiterate again that this is based on a lot of hypotheticals and a lot of speculation, but technically, this is a legal and constitutional possibility. Whether it's ethical or not, that's up to every individual to decide. But in effect, in this potential scenario, despite not having a majority of members of the House of Representatives, and despite not having won the popular vote, Donald Trump would remain in the White House for four more years. So finally, let's return to that question from the beginning of this podcast. Is Trump trying to lose the election? Firstly, let's look at his tweets. As you've probably seen in the news over the past few months, the president has been systematically attacking mail-in ballots as a voting method, calling them fraudulent and open to corruption. In tweets on the 26th of May, Trump said, and don't worry, I won't do the voice, there is no way that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent. Mailboxes will be robbed, ballots will be forged and even illegally printed out and fraudulently signed. The governor of California is sending ballots to millions of people, anyone living in the state, no matter who they are or how they got there, everyone will get one. That will be followed up with professionals telling all of these people, many of whom have never even thought of voting before, how and for whom to vote. This will be a rigged election, no way. Experts have repeatedly rejected his claims, and even Twitter added a little note after that tweet, pointing out that it was inaccurate. But within his reasons for making that claim, whatever those reasons are, ultimately it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. As soon as he mentions the idea, it immediately starts to become normalised. He's planted the seed and is letting it germinate, so that when he needs it, when he wants to question the legitimacy of the election, he can sit back and watch it grow. In that sense, you can almost call all of these tweets and comments over the past few months a campaign strategy. Secondly, what about the debates? The second Trump-Biden debate was due to be held in Florida, but following the president's coronavirus diagnosis, the organising committee said the debate would move online, it would be conducted virtually. As we all know, Trump angrily withdrew, saying that he wouldn't waste his time on it. On the one hand, there were quite a few days between when the debate was scheduled and when Trump's doctor said he was no longer contagious, so arguably the president was right when he said his diagnosis wouldn't be a problem by the day of the debate. But on the flip side, some pundits on CNN, for instance, have questioned his logic. They said that he's so far behind in the polls that he's the one that needs the debates to try and turn the race around, so withdrawing from them didn't make much sense. They then argued that if he loses the election, he could then point the finger of blame to the organising committee for not giving him a fair shot. Essentially, he would try to pass the buck to explain why he lost, 
just so he could avoid accepting the blame and so further question the legitimacy of the election. Finally, let's return to that House of Representatives point that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. As I said, that one vote per state rule only kicks in when no candidate reaches 270 electoral college votes, either because there's a tie or because enough state votes are declared null to prevent a candidate from reaching 270. But listen to what President Trump said at a rally towards the end of September. We have an advantage if we go back to Congress. Does everyone understand that? I think it's 26 to 22 or something because it's counted one vote per state. Think about it for a second. Why would he raise that point at a rally? Is it because he predicts that there'll be a tie? Arguably, from his track record, that doesn't seem too likely. He'd rather win by a huge margin because that's who he is. He's a little braggadocious, to coin the term he used a few years ago. Or is it because he knows about that little constitutional point? Because if that's the case, then he knows full well the chain of events that needs to happen or needs to be instigated for the election to be decided in the House of Representatives, where, as it stands, he has the advantage. If it gets to that point, he's back in the White House. And going off what he said at that rally, he knows it. For Trump supporters, this strategy is an ingenious way of keeping the cheating Democrats out. For Democrats, it would mean a Trump presidency by the back door and an affront to democracy itself. So that's everything for this week. A big thank you to Fareed Zakaria and Newsweek's Tom Rogers and Timothy Worth for their musings on this matter. I'll be back next time with another topic, depending entirely on what happens in the world in the meantime. But for now, thank you very much for listening.